On the 5th of June, 2002, in Salt Lake City, Utah, 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart went missing from her parental home. She had been abducted from her bedroom at Knife Point. She would be held captive for nine months and be subjected to horrific abuse at the hands of her captors. In March of 2003, she was rescued by police whilst walking down the street with the help of two members of the public who had recognized her abductors from an American TV show. Thankfully, with time, young Elizabeth would manage to get back to some kind of normality and go on to get married and have kids of her own. The abduction of Elizabeth Smart has quite regularly been used as a classic example of the condition Stockholm Syndrome. The problem is that this case is not really an example of the condition, not even close, as she has always denied that she had any emotional attachment to her captors. She did, on several occasions, have the chance to flee from the people who were holding her hostage, and yes, she chose not to do so. But not because she had feelings for her abductors, but because they had threatened to harm her family if she ever did decide to try and escape. And after being rescued by police, she gladly returned to her parents and never did show any empathy towards the people who abducted her that night back in the summer of 2002. There have been many other famous cases of Stockholm Syndrome. The abduction of Mary McElroy in 1933, the kidnapping of 10-year-old Natasha Kampusch, and when Patty Hearst was taken hostage in 1974, to name a few. But what incident is responsible for coining the term for the condition? Well, for that we have to go back to 1973, when four people were taken hostage at a bank in the capital city of Sweden. This is Nordic True Crime. Clark Odert Olofsson, later known as Daniel Demick, is a Swedish career criminal who was born in Trollhättan on the 1st of February 1947. Olofsson will go on to spend more than half of his life in various prisons throughout Sweden, and his criminal record would be as varied as the institutions he would call home, having received sentences for attempted murder assault, robbery, and drug smuggling. He would also be the first criminal in Sweden to be labeled with the tag of pop gangster. Olofsson's upbringing 
was not something for him to look back on with particular fondness. Both of his parents were alcoholics, and in time, this would result in both he and his siblings being placed into foster care. Like many criminals, he began his choice of career by committing several petty crimes. These offences led to him being placed in a young offenders institution in 1963, and it was from there that he escaped into the countryside with some other boys. They then entered the property of then-Swedish Prime Minister Tage Elander and proceeded to steal what food they could from his greenhouse. It wasn't long before Olofsson was no longer considered a petty criminal. His crimes soon progressed to violence. A few months after escaping from the institution, Olofsson assaulted two police officers. His offences had been stacking up, and he was in turn made an example of and sentenced to three years at Tidaholm prison for his lack of respect for the law. But that wasn't going to stop him. In 1966, the same year in which he was sentenced, he once again escaped from prison and the seriousness of his crimes continued to escalate. In late 1966, two police officers were attending a break-in at the store in the town of Nyköping. When the police arrived at the scene of the crime, the two burglars were, perhaps surprisingly, still there. In an attempt to try and apprehend the criminals, one of the officers, Ragnar Sandal, was shot and killed. His killer was a man called Gunnar Nogren, and his accomplice was, of course, Clark Olofsson. Norgren was given the most severe sentence possible at that time. However, he did escape two years later. But just 36 hours later, he was rearrested and sentenced to an additional 12 years for the attempted murder of another police officer in connection with the escape. For his part in the crime, Olofsson was sentenced to eight years. On the 4th of February 1969, he again managed to escape from prison. However, this time, he fled to the Canary Islands and was later arrested in an apartment in Frankfurt, Germany. When he had just two months left of his sentence, he decided to once again make his escape from prison. A clear pattern of behavior was taking shape. This time, he had been on the run for a period of seven months, during which he successfully robbed a bank in the city of Gothenburg on Sweden's west coast, before he was once again arrested. He was sentenced in May of 1973 to six years in prison and was subsequently transferred to a prison in the city of Kalmar. But this would not be the last time the people of Sweden, or in fact the world, would hear of Clark Odet Olofsson.
Jan-Erik Janne Olsson was born on the 16th of April 1941 in the town of Ekeby on the outskirts of the city of Helsingborg in southern Sweden. It was while serving out a sentence for theft at a prison in the city of Kalmar that Jan-Erik Olsson first met Clark Olofsson and they soon became good friends. Olsson was obsessed with the crimes of Olofsson, particularly with his bank robberies. When Olsson was out on a special leave from the prison, he would return to Kalmar in order to attempt an audacious prison break. Olofsson had previously had dynamite smuggled into the prison, which he wanted to use to try and blow open one of the exterior walls, whilst Olsson sat on the other side of said wall in a getaway car. However, the rescue attempt was a failure. The dynamite failed to detonate, and for once, Olofsson's plan to escape prison was thwarted. At 10.02 a.m. on the morning of Thursday the 23rd of August 1973, a masked man entered Kreditbanken, a former Stockholm-based bank on Normanstorg in the center of the city. The man was wearing sunglasses and a wig. He was also armed with a submachine gun and dynamite. The mystery man was Jan-Erik Olsson. This is the bank in Stockholm where the uh, robber has barricaded himself. He is equipped with a machine gun and he has several people as ransom in there. He has already shot one policeman in the hand while the policeman tried to overtake him and the other ones had to escape and run for cover. And since then, nobody has really been able to see him. Uh, they have policemen in the localities and they are trying to get hold to shoot him. He fired warning shots into the air, making sure that everyone knew who was in charge, while shouting in a disguised American accent. The party has just begun. He then sat a radio down on one of the tables, which he had turned into the Swedish radio station P3. Unson, whose identity at this point was still unknown to the police, took three women hostage. Birgitta Lundblad, 31, Elisabeth Ulgren, 21, and Christian Enmark, 23. Three soon became four when Olsson came across another bank employee, 24-year-old Sven Savström. One of the quick-thinking bank workers managed to raise the alarm and alert the police, who immediately arrived on the scene. This would be the beginning of a six-day siege but it would not exactly be your normal bank robbery. It would have been more or less forgotten about with time if it had not been for the actions of the hostages. It didn't take long before Olsson relayed his ransom demands to the police. These demands were somewhat straightforward and expected. He wanted around 3 million Swedish crowns, which is around 311,000 US dollars in today's money, 
a getaway car, bulletproof vests, helmets, two pistols, an escape vehicle, and for his good friend and fellow criminal, Clark Olofsson, to be brought to the bank. Clark Olofsson was of course currently serving time for armed robbery and as an accessory in the 1966 murder of police officer Ragnar Sandal. After a period of consideration, which in reality was just a matter of hours, the police and government met the demands of the bank robber. Olofsson was delivered to the bank. The ransom money was paid in full and a getaway vehicle with a full tank of gas was waiting on the street outside the bank. However, the authorities did refuse one of Olsson's demands, one very important demand. They refused to let the robbers leave the bank with their hostages in tow. Under no circumstances was this to happen. The unfolding drama was soon capturing headlines not just in Sweden, but around the world. Mainly due to the fact that the siege was being played out live on television screens throughout the country. By the second day of the kidnapping, things were already beginning to differ from a typical hostage situation. The hostages were now on first-name terms with their abductors, and it was on this day that then Prime Minister Olof Palme spoke directly with one of the bank workers, 23-year-old Christian Enmark, and he was left rather surprised by what she had to say. Enmark was disappointed with the Prime Minister's decision not to let them leave in the car with their captors and told him, I fully trust both Clark and the other robber. I'm not desperate. They have not done one thing to us. On the contrary, they have been very nice. But you know, Olaf, what I am scared of is that if the police attack, then they will cause our deaths. The conversation was broadcast directly on the radio. The Swedish public couldn't believe what they were hearing. What could they have done to this woman to make her think in such a way? The balance between the fear of their captors and the security of the authorities was clearly starting to shift. Both the robbers and the hostages barricaded themselves inside one of the bank's vaults, but two police officers who had managed to sneak into the bank sealed the door to that same vault. They were trapped, with nowhere to go. On the 26th of August, which was now the third day of the siege, the police drilled several holes in the roof. At first, the holes were used as a way to lower a camera into the building to see exactly what was happening, but also, at a later stage, they were to be used as a way of filling the room with tear gas. However, the robbers already knew that the police were planning to drill the holes even before they had begun. Remember the radio Olsson took into the bank? Well, the police's plan was broadcast, for reasons unknown, and the same channel that the captors and their hostages were listening to. 
Olson became angered at this, and when the drilling of the holes were complete, he shot through them at the police officers on the other side on at least two separate occasions. On one of those occasions, he hit a police forensic detective who received injuries to the hand and face. In order to try and hinder the police from filling the room with gas, the robbers came up with an idea. They forced the hostages to sit with rope tied around their necks during periods of the day, so if the gas was to enter the room, then they would be strangled as they lost consciousness. Therefore, in the eyes of the captors, the deaths of the hostages would be the fault of the police. Finally, the police had had enough and executed their plan to fill the vault with gas. It had the desired effect. It didn't take long at all before the hostage takers were overcome by the debilitating gas and succumbed to a meek surrender. Miraculously, at the end of the six-day siege, none of the hostages or robbers received any injuries. The rescue was broadcast over TV screens and in newspapers worldwide. It probably seemed as though it was very similar to most bank robberies where hostages are taken as collateral against some form of ransom. But even before the bank workers were set free, the narrative didn't follow that of a typical hostage scenario. There was of course the phone call that Christine Enmark made to the Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palme. However, Enmark's behavior and tone of voice during the call could have been put down to the stress and pressure she was under from her captors. But there was one other incident that sparked the interest of the police. The police commissioner was allowed to briefly enter the bank during the siege in order to check on the condition and well-being of the hostages. He noted that the bank employees were particularly hostile towards him, but not towards the robbers. In fact, they seemed to be even jovial around the gunmen. He described it as a very relaxed relationship. And there was, of course, the surrender itself. When the police instructed the hostages to leave the bank first, the bank workers protected their captors until the bitter end, fearful that they would be shot if they left the building first. When the police finally entered the vault, it was there that they witnessed the hostages and the robbers embracing each other. They hugged, kissed, and said their goodbyes, as if they had been friends since childhood. Ian Mark even said to Olofsson, See you soon. Whereas other hostages pleaded, Please, don't hurt them. They didn't harm us. In the aftermath of the robbery, similar information to which the police commissioner had witnessed was mentioned in statements to the police and to journalists around the world. Even when one of the hostages was threatened with violence, in order to make the police take the captors more seriously, the hostage in question played the threat down as if it was nothing. 
it was Olsson who had threatened to shoot Sven Sävström, the only male hostage, in the leg to startle the police. When speaking to the New Yorker, he said, How kind I thought he was for saying it was just my leg that he would shoot. Christian Enmark even piped in, commenting, But Sven, it's okay, it's just a leg. When the case finally went to court, even the two robbers, Olsson and Olofsson, were somewhat surprised by how the bank workers acted. Olsson told the court, It was the hostages' fault. They did everything I told them to. If they hadn't, I might not be here now. Why didn't any of them attack me? They made it hard to kill. They made us go on living together day after day, like goats in that filth. There was nothing to do but to get to know each other. They even shielded us so that the police could not shoot. Although Olsson had not been in prison himself for violent behavior, Olofsson was a completely different matter. He had of course been in jail for a series of violent attacks, including that of attempted murder. So in the end, The behavior of the hostages combined with Olsson's statement certainly garnered a degree of credibility. The hostages' behavior seemed to have strongly impacted the behavior of the robbers. The whole situation had both the Swedish public and police perplexed. The bank workers' irrational behavior and attachment to the two men left most dumbfounded. The police even considered that Kristin Enmark may have been involved in the crime, as her behavior was so out of the ordinary. But it was not only the people on the outside who were confused, so too were some of the hostages. When speaking to a psychiatrist the day after the siege, Elisabeth Olgren asked, Is there something wrong with me? Why don't I hate them? There was no shortage of psychiatrists who were ready to give their opinions and explanation for what had occurred. However, it was when Nils Bergeroth, a Swedish psychologist and criminologist, was appointed as an advisor during the robbery that he coined the term Stockholm Syndrome. A term to refer to the way in which hostages become grateful to the hostage takers. A term which has been widely used since its inception, both professionally and in popular culture. The official definition of Stockholm Syndrome is as follows. A condition which causes hostages to develop a psychological alliance with their captors as a survival strategy during captivity. These alliances result from a bond formed between captor and captives during intimate time together. But they are generally considered irrational in light of the danger or risk endured by the victims. It is thought that roughly 8% of hostage victims show some sort of evidence of displaying signs of Stockholm Syndrome. The condition is also considered to consist of four key components a hostage development of positive feelings towards the captor, 
no previous relationship between hostage and captor ever existing, a refusal from the hostage to cooperate with police or other government officials, and the hostage belief in the humanity of the captor because they cease to perceive the captor as a threat when the victim holds the same values as the aggressor. The one problem is that the condition is often contested due to its core components being readily found beyond the context of hostage situations. Several of these components can be found in sexual abuse, terror situations, human trafficking, and political and religious oppression. So what happened to the two men who took the bank workers hostage on that day back in 1973? Both Olson and Olofsson were charged and convicted of the robbery and kidnapping at Kreditbanken and subsequently had their current sentences significantly extended. However, Olofsson told the court that he did not help Olofsson and was only trying to save the hostages by keeping the situation calm. His statement was believed and at the court of appeal, Olofsson's further convictions were thrown out. Clark Olofsson's future after the robbery at Normanstorg would not be crime-free. It would start where it left off, with robberies, jail sentences and escape attempts galore. In March of 1975, just two years after the robbery, he escaped from Norrköping prison and just a month later, he entered a bank in Copenhagen, Denmark and with a gun in each hand, fired a warning shot into the air and robbed said bank of 194,000 crowns. Just one month later, he found himself in a fellow bank robber's boat in Marseille on the French Riviera, and for three months they sailed around the Mediterranean, before heading towards Denmark via Ireland, where the Danish police lay in wait. Olofsson managed to evade arrest and it was not until 1976 that the police were once again on his trail. But as you may have guessed, he evaded capture again. He travelled back to Sweden and later that same year robbed the bank in Gothenburg of 930,000 Swedish crowns, at the time the largest sum of money stolen from a bank in Swedish criminal history. When he was apprehended, he was sentenced to a further eight years in prison, but after only just three weeks into his sentence, he made a daring escape in a Scania truck, driving through three different prison exit doors at Norrköping Prison. And at the end of July in 1976, he was arrested in the city of Halmstad. Since the mid-1970s, Olofsson has been involved in a magnitude of crimes, and even as recent as of 2008, he was arrested on the suspicion of smuggling 100 kilos of amphetamine and 76 kilos of cannabis into Sweden via Holland. Aside from his colourful rap sheet 
and maybe more interesting in terms of the context of Stockholm Syndrome. Soon after the robbery, Olofsson became friends with Christine Enmark, and they are even both still good friends to this day. Jan-Erik Olsson. Well, it may come as a surprise that after serving his sentence for the robbery at Kreditbanken, it would be the last crime he would ever be charged with. Having lived in Thailand for several years, Olsson returned to Helsingborg, where he has been running a car sales company for a number of years at an industrial area. He has openly demonstrated his regret for his time as a professional criminal and has repeatedly apologized for the hostage siege at Normanstorg. Not quite the pop culture gangster lifestyle most would have expected from the mastermind behind the robbery which coined the term Stockholm Syndrome. This is Kimberly. And I'm Kristen, hosts of the Murder and Myths podcast. In our podcast, we tackle a common theme and bring you two stories. One of true crime, where I discuss murder and unsolved cases. And one of mythology, where I delve into the darker side of Norse, Egyptian, and other lesser known mythos. You can find us on Twitter at Murder and Myths and our website, murderandmyths.com. Our new episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. So please leave us a review and let us know what you think. And don't forget, come for the murder and stay for the myths. How many of you know the name Linda Goff or Sarah Marsland? I bet you will have heard of their murderers though, Fred West and Harold Shipman. Hi everybody, this is Steve, the host of True Crime Fix, the podcast which gives the story whilst giving the victim the loudest voice of them all. So far we've covered cases such as Colette Aram, Kitty Genovese, Jackie Paul, JC Sawyer and Molly McLaren. I'll be releasing new episodes every other Friday via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and all other available stations. So please come over and subscribe and give my podcast a listen. I really hope that you find these episodes informative. If you would like further information, Please follow me on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or find me on Facebook, True Crime Fix Podcast. And remember, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>